Now, as we talk about this morning, this subject of biblical generosity, some of you, for good reasons, have what I call a a one-word feeling, and that is of suspicion, especially since we're about to expand our current facility by 8,000 square feet. That is the plan. But if you've been here for some time, you know, here's what you know about our church, that when we talk about generosity, it's bigger than just money. We talk about generous living time, which Monty spoke on last week uh, with his message on legacy, talent, truth, and, of course, treasure. Biblical generosity encompasses all of those. But here's what the leaders of this church know, and that is this. Our job as a leader is to clearly define what reality is like for those who faithfully want to walk with Jesus Christ for a lifetime. That's what God has charged the elders of this church with. And part of that is to learn to be a good steward of all that God has entrusted to us. Our future not only demands it, but the Word of God commands it. As elders, our responsibility is to teach the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. And here's the deal. You may not realize this, but we will be held at a higher standard. We will be held accountable for both what we teach and what we don't teach. In light of that, we know that there are folks in this church who are knocking it out of the park when it comes to biblical financial generosity. We know there are folks in this church, very typical of a lot of churches, that need to grow in this area. And we also know there's some that call this church home that are absolutely giving nothing. And I know there are reasons, all kind of reasons for those latter two categories. But we do not want to be one of the, we don't want one of those reasons to be that we did not tell you what God says about it. Can't do it. We are held accountable for what we both teach and don't teach. So what an incredible strategic time such as this for us to speak about biblical generosity, the joy of generosity. So here's what I would ask you to do this morning. If you have suspicions, I would ask you to lay down those red flags of suspicion this morning. Just lay them down and hear what God says about generosity. I think it will alleviate most, if not all, of your suspicions. Because if I told you there's one habit that would bring you priceless joy and it would benefit and bless others, it would open up heaven and let the glory of God shine forth. And if we practice it, it would result in eternal rewards for you and also protect you and I from foolishness, greed, and the worshiping the God of materialism. It would also build the kingdom. It would make room for the mission of God Would you want to know what that is? And the answer is, absolutely. Because in God's economy, being generous is the most joyous way to live. 
being generous is the only way to make sense of this life in light of you and I who've been promised eternity. Randy Alcorn, who wrote a couple of the books that I actually put down at the bottom of your outline for further reading, I would highly suggest those. He puts it this way. The Bible says we're pilgrims, strangers, and aliens on earth, that our citizenship is in heaven. Where we choose to store our treasures depends largely on where we think our home is. This message equips you to know that your home is not here. So remember this morning, we're not only on a generosity journey, we're going to speak to that this morning, but we've been on this missional journey, a life change journey, a spiritual intimacy with our creator journey, a search for joy journey. And once we find these and put them into practice, nothing in my life and nothing in your life will be the same. You see, biblical generosity, catch this, is transformative, not transactional. It is antithetical. Biblical generosity is antithetical to the prosperity of the gospel. Because the prosperity gospel is transactional and not transformative. So let me read with you our text this morning from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, they have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, he speaks to the Corinthian church, in faith, speech, and knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by our earnestness of others that your love also is genuine." For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you his poverty, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So before we unpack this biblical generosity, I think it's smart for us to sort of unpack the story behind the story of why the Apostle Paul wrote both chapter 8 and chapter 9 in the book of 2 Corinthians. This situation in Corinth, we need to understand, is unique in terms of this two chapters on biblical financial generosity, but its truths or principles for giving are comprehensive. This particular situation that Paul's addressing here in 1, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is typically called 
by Bible scholars and theologians and pastors. It's called the collection. A lot of the churches under Paul's influence and ministry, including the Corinthian church, had made a pledge to give a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. Now, at this point in church history, the church in Jerusalem was approximately 20 years old. And humanly speaking, its very existence at that point lay in doubt. And here's why. For 20 years since Christ had resurrected from the grave, because the same people in power that killed Jesus were still in power, those who had come to faith in Christ in Jerusalem had been ostracized, persecuted, arrested, exiled, and executed. Their own family and friends had turned against them. As a result of this persecution, most of the Christians in Jerusalem had no work. No one would hire them. And therefore, if you have no work, you have what? No money. Add to that, there was a famine that swept through that area of the world in the mid-40s. And so the Jewish Christians especially found themselves in financial ruin. So here's what Paul did. As he traveled from country to country and church to church, he asked those churches that were under his influence to take up a collection for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. Now you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 16, the specific uh, uh, commands or specific asks, I would say, that Paul gave the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16. So about a year has passed since he gave them those instructions, and Titus is now returning to Corinth. And here's what's going on. Paul is concerned that the Corinthians, the Christian Corinthians, the church in Corinth, was not fulfilling or had not planned to fulfill or had not done as he had asked concerning this financial project that was sort of going on church-wide. When I say church-wide, the known world. The false teaching, here's what had happened. The false teaching had been creeping into the church at Corinth, one of the main reasons Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. And in that, this church had lost its outward focus. Paul wants to address that. This church in Corinth at this time when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians was not making room for the mission. So, Paul writes two of the greatest chapters, maybe two of the most comprehensive chapters in all the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 on financial biblical generosity. And in light of that, he gives us at least five truths for you and I on biblical generosity. Does that make sense? We're all on the same page? Okay. So the first truth he gives us about biblical generosity is generosity is even from the poor. Look at verse 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Need to underline Macedonia. Corinth was like New York City or Las Vegas. Macedonian was like Podunk, Tennessee. The contrast was huge there. The Macedonian churches, which included Philippi, the Thessalonian church, and the Berean church, were known for their poverty as a way of life. One 
writer said, the word poor there, translated in Greek, means dirt poor. That sounds like Podunk, Tennessee, doesn't it? But they had also suffered, the Macedonian church, persecution for following Christ. The Macedonian people, they were simple people. The church of Corinth were fancy. The Macedonian church, they would go to hear uh, bluegrass music. The church in Corinth, opera. The Macedonians had little materially and the Corinthian church had much. And yet the Macedonians had blown the doors off with their generosity towards this generosity project for their brothers and sisters in Christ and Jerusalem. So much so that Paul is saying that the Macedonian church is a model of generosity. He's basically saying to the church in Corinth, follow the Macedonians as they follow Christ when it comes to biblical generosity. What a great compliment. Listen carefully to what Paul writes in these first couple of verses about the Macedonian church. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a lot of complaints, in despair, in anxiety. No, Paul says it has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Man, when I read that this week, it felt like my, you know that commercial, the deodorant commercial where the God's head explodes? I just thought, that's, that's mind-blowing. Since they were so poor, their generosity must have been like that of the poor widow that Jesus prays for her sacrificial giving. Paul here is contrasting and highlighting the difference between the Corinthians' lack of giving, though they had plenty, and the Macedonians' generous giving, even though they were very poor. You may or may not know that research for years and years now has shown that those with less financial resources give a larger percentage of their money than those who have plenty. And here, that research proves true again. But there was another reason that the Macedonian Christians were generous. And in some ways, this is the core reason. It is because generosity is motivated by grace. As you read these two chapters, you'll notice that the word grace is used eight times in chapters eight and nine, and five times in the first nine verses. If you and I get this truth about generosity, most of the rest will just follow right along. Look at verse one. It says, the grace of God given to the Macedonians. What does that mean? It means the grace of God through the gospel showed up to the churches in Macedonia, they came to a trusting faith in the Lord Jesus. And through that, they became, became radical 
joyful and generous people in the midst of poverty and persecution. Matter of fact, their joy was rooted in God's grace and kindness and mercy to them, that he would save them. They understood the gospel. John Piper put it this way, the grace of God allowed affliction and the grace of God made poor people radically generous and radically generous people are abundantly joyful. He sums up what happened to the Christians in Macedonia. And you know what? Only God can do that. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The Christians in Macedonia, they understood that 30-word theology of incarnation. When Paul writes that, he, when he talks about the grace of God that had come to them, he has his eye on the cross as the reason one is motivated to give generously to the mission of God. That Christ, who was rich, became poor. He gave himself so that we who are poor spiritually might become what? Rich. Paul actually unpacks grace-motivated giving in all of chapters 8 and 9, and he ends with the last verse, the last phrase in chapter 9 at the end, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And that gift is of his son, Jesus. When you and I think about what we have received in Christ, here's what happens. We open our hands. When you and I forget what we've been given in Christ, we live like this. It's mine. Grace through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus to us undeserving sinners. When we forget, we live like this. And look, just those two expressions. And I ask you, what do you want to be remembered for? This or this? If anything is hindering you from giving faithfully to God and His work, His grace to you in Christ should blow it up and destroy it. Put another way, if you are not giving to the mission of God, it may be because, it probably is because, you do not understand fully nor grasp completely the incredible grace of God to you through his Son. Verse 7, Paul says, See that you excel in this act of grace. Giving is grace. Giving is grace. Our giving becomes an extension of God's grace in our lives. Our response to God's grace to us. The third truth about generosity is generosity is categorized by an element of faith. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. 
Notice Paul says real clearly that these poor, poverty-stricken Macedonian Christians gave beyond their means. There's no doubt that Paul wants to communicate to the church in Corinth and to us that there's a financial stretching going on here with the Macedonian Christians. You see that clearly, right? No doubt. But I want to take a minute here to speak to the dangers when these kind of things are mistaught or twisted. And that is, Paul also says, and that's why we teach the whole counsel of God, to protect you from us and you from yourself. Paul also says we are to give based on what one has, not on what he does not have. So here's what we're not talking about. We're not talking about this grandiose presumption upon God that we would write a $10,000 check to Fellowship Bible Church, and then by faith we write that check, and we hope that by the time we get home, somehow miraculously, God would make the money come in our account so that check wouldn't bounce. That's not only unbiblical, that kind of stuff's unbiblical, it's irresponsible. It's immature. But there are people who teach that kind of stuff. And it's called sin. And it's called heretics. So Paul is letting us know here that the Macedonians, though, they felt their generosity. They are attempting to exercise their faith and trust, the Macedonians, in God as their provider and they're in their giving. John Piper says it this way. They took risk, the Macedonian Christians, giving in their giving. And we are to ponder what would it look like for you and I to have this element of by faith in our giving. To feel, to feel it in terms of taking proper biblical risk. Randy Alcorn, I love how he says it. When we have grown comfortable with our level of giving, it is time to increase because generosity is categorized by an element of faith. Lastly, don't miss this. Notice they gave of their own accord. They gave of their own free will. They gave by their own choice. They were not coerced, manipulated, bullied or intimidated. It's why Paul writes in the next chapter, 9, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his or her heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a, you fill it in, cheerful giver. Cheerful giver. That word is actually hilarious. <laughs> like, like it's like, I can't believe I'm giving this. <laughs> Man, that, that makes no sense in a world. That makes no sense when I'm giving in a world that is all about what you possess. <laughs> I love that word picture. So I ask, may we as a church and individually ponder and prayerfully chew on what that would mean for our particular situation. Fourthly, generosity is from an eager heart. Verses 3, 4, and 8. 
The grace of God had motivated these poor Christians to be stretched in their giving. But they had a passion with their giving. Verse 4 says, They begged Paul earnestly to be a part of this project. Please, please let us be a part of this. Most say Paul was actually trying to stop them from giving because he knew they had nothing to give. He was like, it's okay, we'll go to some other churches. You're not there financially. They were like, Paul, no. We want to be a part of this. We're on a journey for joy, Paul. Don't rob us of our joy. (laughs) They beg for the favor to give. Translated, the privilege to give. They begged for that. That reminded me of years ago when my oldest son Josh was 12 and Jess was 10. I took them to southern Mexico, the poorest part of Mexico there is, to show the Jesus film. Took them on a week-long mission trip there. And they were a a group of small Bible-believing Christians that we connected with a local church, and uh, the rest around them were non-Christian and all kind of different beliefs and a little bit cray-cray. We had people walking in the streets, uh, rubbing necklaces to try to get rid of us, and I was like, oh, and, you know, I, that's what I thought about doing, but very poor, no electricity, dirt huts, and we were going to go away for lunch one day, about a 20, 30-minute drive on our bus. And these people begged us. They begged, please, that morning, let us fix lunch for you. Please don't uh, embarrass us. Please don't uh, take away from our heart's desire to serve you. These folks caught live chickens walking around in their yard. They plucked them. They cleaned them. They put spices on them. And they spent five or six hours cooking chicken and making fresh tortillas to feed us. In the hot sun, squatting over an open fire outside on an old big metal pan. None of us had a dry eye. They, they begged to give to us their very best. And it was the best food <laughs> you've ever tasted. But they sacrifice greatly. That's what the Macedonians are doing here. Generosity is also a mark, lastly, of the growing disciple. Verse 5. It says, they gave more than was expected. Why? How could they do that? Here's the key, because they first gave themselves to what? The Lord. This is a statement of God being the very center of their lives. They said yes to God before they gave money. They said yes to the mission of God. They said yes to the kingdom of God way before. They said yes to giving the money. The financial giving was an overflow of saying yes to the Lord. The hard part is saying yes. Could you say it again, please? The financial part is. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know who this is, it, but. Kevin? That's Kevin Perry's phone, y'all. 
It's the last thing. I was like, someone is talking over here. <laughs> Thought it was Grant Waldron. That'll make you wake up, won't it? The financial giving was an overflow of saying yes to the Lord. So the hard part is saying yes to the Lord. The easy part is the giving. Their giving was not mechanical, folks. It was an act of worship. Far too often we get the order of these two things backwards. I want to be clear here about our own implication and application at Fellowship Bible Church. I want to be crystal clear. We are not giving money to a building although that money will be used to expand our facilities. We are giving financially to a mission to make room for the mission of cultivating more and more and more connected followers of the Lord Jesus. When we treasure Christ above money, above security, Above comfort, generosity flows like the rain has been flowing around Murfreesboro the last few weeks. When we first give ourselves to the Lord, we live open-hearted and open-handed. When we don't, we live tight-fisted because we easily forget who God is, what He has done in Christ, and what He wants to do until He returns through His people. When a Christian first gives themselves to the Lord, they'll be known for generosity. It's like blinking versus consumption and accumulation. There's no doubt that this idea, this truth of biblical generosity is a paradox. But folks, the whole Christian life is a what? Paradox. You want to find your life, you what? Lose your life. The typical roadblocks and justification to our non-giving, our unbelief, insecurity, pride, idolatry, desire for control are all destroyed when we give ourselves first to the Lord. And then put icing on the cake. Here's our four words that will change your life forever. God owns it all. Say it with me. God owns it all. Generosity at its core is a lifestyle. It flows from this understanding biblically that all we have, all we are, and ever will become is not ours to possess. Biblical generosity embraces fully, one, that God is the owner of everything. Two, what we have has been given to us by God. And three, what we have been given is to be invested in the kingdom. And folks, this is an indirect conflict with our American culture that screams at us that we have earned it. It's ours and we can do as we please. That's the conflict of the heart of a believer in America in 2000. I knew that. <laughs> Tim Keller puts it this way. A lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but God's. Here's the sad truth. 
The average church member in the U.S. gives 2.5% of their income. There's no doubt the church needs equipping, unmanipulative, uncoerced, godly equipping in this area of biblical generosity. Take a look at the screen. I had my tombstone. <laughs> I had my tombstone designed this week. I thought about this. I thought, you know, I would love to be known as generous and as a turkey killer. <laughs> I don't have an end date. You know why I didn't put an end date on there? Because I'm going to live forever. But here's the deal. You're going to die, and I'm going to die. And you cannot take it with you. As a pastor, one of the hard things and sad things you get to do is funerals. Never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. Can't take it with you. It ain't yours. It's a great reminder. Wouldn't it be great? This whole church, every time they died, the word generous was on their tombstone. Man, they're just crazy. Fellowship, they're generous. Jeff, the general generous Patton. How about that? <laughs> Ain't nothing like it. Let me pray for us this morning.